Good morning and welcome back to the Isle of Faces. Welcome to part nine of Feast for Crows, Scraps and Scrolls, the sister to History of Westeros' Valor Readers Project. Hello and welcome back. I'm talking to you from a cloudy, quite rainy England slash the Isle. How do I know this? Well, it's because I've already been out there with the bubble up in the quite cold rain, quite windy wind. So I have first-hand experience. We're also, as you might be able to hear, recording in a different location again. Lady Buckley has commandeered the desk once more. So I am downstairs. Hopefully it doesn't sound too different. I don't think it did last week. Hopefully there won't be too much more editing work. You might hear the puppy snuffling and huffling. At some point she's drying off next to me at the moment. But we'll see as we go. We are back to four chapters today. It's our usual structure. And it's really, basically, the Feast Four, I think we can call them. Well, except there's only three. But it's the main characters of Feast today. We've got two Jamies. We've got a Cersei and we've got a Brienne. So we've got that real triangle going. And yeah, I think when we talk about Feast, these are the three you first think of. They're the ones with the most chapters after all. Before we get there today, not too much in the way of news. Only to say, of course, our normal thank you to all the wonderful patrons and their generosity and friendship as well. Only one bit of housekeeping before we get going today. It is, well, I'm probably not the most tech savvy person of how to run a podcast etc so i don't know how to get notifications when you guys leave reviews over, over on applecast and stuff like that so forgive me that i only see them kind of sporadically when i think to check but there was a couple of nice reviews left lately in the last couple of weeks five star reviews which obviously means a lot so thank you very much also some nice kind comments as well fortunately i don't know who left them but whoever you are i thank you so much for your kind reviews and kind words one of you mentioned that the music at the beginning and sometimes in the middle is a bit too loud at the moment so thank you for that feedback i will try and adjust that today with the editing and lower that a bit so you can actually hear me waffle on with the intro or whatever we're talking about at the beginning but other than that just wanted to say thank you as we do to our patrons to anyone leaving a review anyone downloading and listening a lot of you also leave comments on the podbean app or on youtube and it's just always appreciated we like getting emails from you we like hearing about you we like everything to do with interaction so keep that up thank you very much for everyone who's a patron and who's not it's so much appreciated we've had some newbies sign up this week so that's always wonderful to welcome you if anyone else out there would like to have a look and see what's going on for these green folk over on the other faces the different uh, benefits and extras you can get from obviously one dollar a month and up you can well i'm sure you know where to go go and have a look on patreon you might want to join us you might not that's fine as well we don't mind but thank you to all those who do this obviously well appreciated and i would especially like to thank as always Lord Commander Naomi Darklin, KM, Archmaster June, the healer of the Lesser Poxes, and of course, Lady Raj, Mistress of Force. We love you all from the bottom of our heart, and we hope you enjoy your time as a special member of the Isle of Faces. There's more coming, don't worry, Storm's End is coming, but I won't go on about that too much today. And the last thing to think about before we get going here is I've been thinking lately of maybe we should have some kind of uh, mailbag episode just on what we're talking about people interacting with the podcast mailbag episode uh, ama you know kind of faq whatever you want to call it maybe we should just have a general bonus episode of questions about feast about anything else you want to talk about just let me know if there's interest in that just have a tweet have a comment whatever you like email we'll see if there's interest maybe there's not maybe i should just shut up and get on with it but if there is then that's something else we could look at in the near future so just keep that in mind as you're listening today and definitely let me know what you think we can pretty much just head straight into it, I think, because like I say, I'm a bit cold and wet. I want to get on with it, and I'm sure you do too. So let us begin with our first of the two Jamies. We've got two Jamie bookends today with Jamie 4. 
So to begin with, we're getting a real blast from the past in this main setting of Jamie 4. We're going all the way back to the first act of A Game of Thrones. We're back at Castle Darry, or we will be. And this is where the king's huge entourage, Starks included, stopped so they could search for Aya after her confrontation with Joffrey. I know, wind your mind all the way back because that does seem quite a while ago, doesn't it? Even more importantly, this is where Ned had to kill Lady. We've come back to that, the site of that incredibly sad moment for, for the series. Probably one of the first real sad moments. Okay, yes, we'd already had Bran, but we all love those diabols. And that was a huge, huge moment for Sansa, of course, but also the relationship with her sister and, well, everyone's relationship with Joffrey. And it was a start of confrontation between Ned and Robert, Ned and Cersei. It's all really kicks off back there so this is a really important place and perhaps that taboo of ladies killing left a taint behind because castle Darry hasn't had the best time of it since indeed since then it's been captured by the lannisters recaptured by the darries taken back with extreme force by greyrock again for the lannisters then taken by northmen who've been commanded to slay the captives and burn the castle by bruce bolton before being left for broken men and outlaws until lancel etc etc arrive and put it into the state in which we find today. Of course, most of this history is glossed over in this chapter because Jamie's main memory is of him and Cersei doing the deed over Robert's sleeping form back in the day. If he's not thinking back on that, he's thinking more in the present in terms of hunting down Lancel because he wants to get to the bottom of this mystery of what Cersei has been up to lately in terms of doing the deed. That mantra that we all know and love that is really very strong in Jamie's motivations today. And before we get going while we're talking of Castle Darry in general, remember this is our first real introduction to the idea that some lords still prefer Targaryen rule over Roberts via the hidden tapestries that Tyrion noticed. That's going all the way back to the Game of Thrones. That was our first kind of nod that that kind of thing existed. And that's all going to become more and more prevalent as we go. But let's get into the text straight away, shall we? Because last time we were in this area or in the Riverlands, we've kind of seen it with Brienne a little bit already, the land was all weeds and waste and just not looking great. But now we at least have Darius trying to make an attempt, attempt being the key word, at getting another harvest in and sorting everything out and making it look decent again. Even if Jamie thinks they're doomed and he's probably correct let's be honest we should note also that there are now men stood around protecting the farmers they just stood there with their weapons and just kind of protecting them and the idea is you're supposed to have the crown and your knights for doing that job that's how it's always been in this feudal agreement that's just how it works but they've proved to be pretty useless in that regard in the last few years so now the small folk they're just going to do it for themselves so it's a further weakening of the power of the crown more people are arming themselves and taking matters into their own hands and that's keeping this theme ticking over, really, of just the crown getting worse and worse. It's less respected. It's less needed. What do we need you for if you're not even going to protect us? If we're going to do it ourselves, why are we bothering to pay taxes? Why are we bothering to support you at all? And again, it's just not looking great for the crown, is it? Along those same lines, Jamie will later know that even an army of his size, which is really no size at all, of about a thousand men, at least not compared to the forces we were seeing earlier in the series, that's already too large to maintain in the Riverlands anymore due to a lack of food. Even in somewhere semi-restored like Darry, there's much worse places in the Riverlands they could be visiting. Even there, not enough food for everyone to go around. So that's going to be another huge factor going forward in winds because armies aren't sustainable in the field anymore. So how are they going to get around? How are these different forces going to affect each other? If you can't have armies, how do you go to war? It's going to be quite interesting to see how that works. 
So early on, our arrival at Darrow, we have Sir Kenos and his horn. He gets to uh, trumpet their arrival. And he gets a lot of shine, actually, in these chapters of using his horn. And that's fitting, given how we've been discussing Euron and his own hornblower of late. They're really getting a shine. Anyway, here's the first quote of the day. Kevin should be Tommen's hand. Harris Swift is a toad, and my sister is a fool if she thinks elsewise. So in these early pages, we get a lot of evidence of Kevin's suitability for rule, which we already knew about anyway, but we're getting reminded of it. We have this talk of courted flags and the particular choice of brides, and just how smart he's being about it all, and how handy that would really be at King's Landing right about now. Jamie specifically thinks on how clever it is to find uh, a Frey girl, seeing as Freys are so powerful at the moment, they're really kind of ticking upwards for now but who was also half Darry to keep the locals happy. And that really is the best possible choice at the moment, all things considered. And it's actually mirrored exactly by what Roose Bolton is doing up in the north. There's this line about old line continuation, and continuing the Starks is the ultimate old line continuation, isn't it? But it's still smart politics down in the south as well, especially, especially given the hatred a lot of these small folk are going to have for the upper class after the war, like we've just discussed. They're not happy, so you've got to keep them as content as possible, really. Unfortunately, no more Red Ronnet beatings in this chapter. Jamie tells us he's off to Maidenpool to deliver Willis Manderley. And Ronnet is probably lucky he's going now and not a bit earlier on because Brienne might do worse than just old golden-handed. And Ronnet's been sent off with Gregor's horrible lot, so we know that isn't going to be enjoyable, at least that's the least he deserves. We'll next see him in Kevin's epilogue in Dance of Dragons, so for quite a while yet, when he has to come back to King's Landing and defend himself against the accusations he was in league with John Connington, because John Connington is going to take Storm's End soon, as we know. It seems at the end of that chapter that he's kind of acquitted, but Randall Tarley actually wants him sent up to the wall, so good riddance to him. Next quote here. It's like some toy castle, Jamie heard her say. She's known no home but Harrenhal, he reflected. Every castle in the realm will seem small to her, except the rock. Now, I mention this just because it's a real nice inversion. This is obviously, we're talking about Pretty Pyre here. It's a nice inversion from what we've traditionally seen with Gilly or Egret where they see like a windmill or whatever it is and think it's a massive huge castle well, now we're going with the reverse because someone's come from Harrenhal and it's odd to think of someone who views somewhere as horrible as Harrenhal as their home when it's always just been a pit stop for our main players there's no one major who's really come from Harrenhal they will just wind up there unfortunately and speaking of Harrenhal we also hear of Jamie dispensing further justice while they're still there with one of the mountains men trying to force himself on Pyre. There's a gut-churning argument that the man makes, that they've all been doing so for so long that it can hardly be called a crime anymore. And yes, that's not fun to think about. Luckily, Jamie does not agree, and he puts Sir Illyn to work. And all we can really enjoy is that Pyre, Pyre, Newton, neither seem right to me, Pyre smiles with the reward of this man's head. But it does go to show that Jamie is working more and more on becoming that golden hand figure, especially with the justice. And that's going to be important in both his chapters today so keep that in mind so as we approach the castle and again we see these kind of renewed lands and the castle itself after being through so much is actually looking okay we see that the wall truly is being left behind in some places few castles suffered as much damage as darry but lancel or more likely kevin has got going with the rebuilding he's really into it now and that's ushering in a new time for all they need to put that horrible era behind and think okay we're moving forward but Jamie at the same time notices that there's more Freys and Sparrows than Lannister men. So that hold, as smart as it might be from Kevin, might be tentative. And last week's Cersei chapter was all about the Sparrows. So it's great chapter sequencing yet again from George. That even when apart, Jamie and Cersei are sharing something in the, the build-up of these Sparrows. And again, they're going to be showing up more and more through this chapter. 
Next we meet another maester. This time it's Maester Ottomore. How many named maesters have we actually got in this book now? Someone needs to count. I'm going to have to go back and count because I swear it's outstripping any other book. Just in, mere, in terms of mere naming all the maesters. So Jamie, talking to this maester, he admits he's lying about Darry being on his way to Riverrun. And he's not wrong. If you look at your maps, he had to go almost dead north from Harrenhal to get here. Instead of the shallow northwesterly line he needed to take to reach Riverrun. Perhaps he can claim he wanted to reach the river road and then go west along, along that, but really it's just evidence of this darker need, that he calls it, that he can't shake off. Maybe he's not consciously thinking of Cersei as much, that's true, but Tyrion's mocking lie is still controlling Jaime to some degree. Unfortunately, what he also finds out talking to this maester, Kevin is always one step ahead. Jaime still can't catch him, but there is Lancel, which is tempting in his own way. Now we already mentioned the tapestries and... Uh, we link that to Tyrion, and Jamie here recalls some friendlier times with Tyrion back at Darry when his brother sniffed out those those tapestries specifically, and we got that original idea of Targaryen lovers like we mentioned at the top. So Jamie's thinking of that already, and that's something else we're going to see a little bit more in this chapter. Is Jamie just leaning slightly more to the nicer memories of Tyrion, even though he's going to have kind of a rough time of it in terms of Tyrion's lie? I think he's kind of weighing up and thinking. Well, actually, I still do like Tyrion a lot more than my sister because she's being not too nice to me at the moment. Next, we have Jamie giving some advice to Peck about Pia, Pia, whatever you want to call her. It's a surprise that Jamie's talking about this type of thing at all, and it's another sign of that turning back to life and open to vulnerability that we talked about last week. But most important is his making sure that Peck is gentle with Pia because this is obviously a very, very fragile time or thing for her to even consider she'd be well within her right to never want to kind of go down that road again so maybe it's jamie feeling guilty about not taking pyre out from Harren hall when he left last time in storm or perhaps it's just a sign he's becoming more and more decent he wants her to be treated well with sweet words and, and gentle caresses whatever he tells peck so let's just hope that george allows peck and pyre to have some happiness together because that'd be nice wouldn't it the other side of this is jamie also has some arousal when he thinks about pyre he's in the bath he's looking at her her form, <laughs> I can't remember how George actually describes it, her womanly form, let's say, and he's uh, reacting, let's say, physically reacting. And this is probably the most we've actually even seen him consider another woman in that way, other than Cersei, obviously. So he's really moving on from Cersei. It just so happens that he thinks about Brienne immediately after this, and he claims it's the memory of being in a bath, but, okay, Jamie, I don't think you're fooling anyone. And last quote from this specific little passage here, his lordship's bed? You'll feel a lord yourself when you're done, if Pyre knows her business. Ah, so I wonder, did Jamie feel a king when he stepped over Robert's form? Going by that logic. So next up, we have Jamie going to the official meal, his welcoming feast. And it's interesting that he does not want to wear his Kingsguard white while he's here in Darry. He opts for the Lannister colouring instead. Perhaps because of his memory of what he did to his king with his wife when he was pre here previously. Maybe in honour of Sir Jonathan Darry, although I, I bloody doubt it. Perhaps because this is due to be a Lannister interaction, whether with Kevin or Lancel. But actually, he gives us the answer. He knows this is not official business, but an indulgent of his own. He's not here as Lord Commander, he's just here as Jamie, even if he doesn't want to admit it. He says it's no place for whites, and I think his memory of his sexy Cersei time is the largest part of that. At the feast itself, everyone is very courteous and polite. Amore Frey, I think that's how we're saying that. Amore Frey, she seems like a good person, someone Lancel might have been delighted with prior to his injury unfortunately not anymore but it's also this sense of everyone kind of looking at jamie and waiting for something to happen they all know he's there he's not quite supposed to be there and well amore specifically wants him to do something for her 
We also get a mention of another Pate, Amory's first husband. And this time, he was a brave knight. So we always get these connections back to the prologue. We've met a lot of Pates specifically in this book. And this is obviously kind of the furthest from Pate the pig boy that we met at the beginning. Next quote. Your father was not a tapestry. Yes, this is Amory talking about her father Merritt, but we really are getting a lot of tapestry talk all of a sudden, aren't we? We have Peter Baelish, we have here at Darry, with both the old and the new. In Victorian's last chapter, someone was wrapping themselves in a tapestry. So what are you trying to weave here, George? What are you trying to tell us? And she did a check, and I can confirm the word tapestry or tapestries appears more in Feast of Crows than any other book. Game of Thrones comes in second, so take that as you will. I know that is a hot take I'm really doing the research for you this week aren't I tapestry mentions yeah so Jamie he has his memories of Merit Frey that we first spoke of in the storm epilogue and there's good timing with this extra talk of Stoneheart and whatever she's up to and it's also funny to see what Amore and her family were told versus the truth we get from both Jamie and Merit about Merit's youth and his exploits now old Jamie he might have enjoyed the chance to educate on what Merit was really like and how false those stories actually are Instead, new Jamie just gives him a toast and gives him that honour, at least. All of Darry is still very much concerned about the different bands of outlaws roaming all over the place, basically in every direction. And given the Gassel's recent history, you can see why. We get our chapterly update on the wolves, and there's some talk of supposed sandals, there always is, but Jamie concentrates on the news of the Brotherhood. The talk of Lady Stoneheart is starting to grow and grow as we move here, which is oh so important for the ending. I believe this is the first time anyone ever mentions that Beric sightings are becoming rarer. No one's actually seen Beric lately. I think that's starting to seep through into the public consciousness. I believe it's Amory's mother who brings that up. What's very, very interesting is the idea that Lady Stoneheart disappeared into the net. Now, we don't know how true that actually is, whether she just kind of got to the border and went all the way in or what, but it would make sense for them to go through Hagsmire when we know they were at Old Stones before, which must have been very emotional for Stoneheart if she still has that capacity but I guess we spoke about that last time. We've also heard rumours of them being further east lately. When she finally meets Brienne it's somewhere in the middle of the east-west line of the Riverlands so she could have come back down from the neck easy enough but why was she there anyway? Just to escape notice and escape these people chasing them or is she seeking out Mage Morn and Hallis Morn or even Howland Reed? I really doubt it's the latter, but people like to include him in any and all theories, don't they? We get this Arthur Dane story from Jamie here about his past, and that's very interesting and quite specific for this timing, actually, because the story is focused on Sir Arthur Dane basically making friends with the small folk down in the Kingswood and using them to the, his advantage. And we can already see, as we've spoken about twice already in this chapter, the bubbling of lords versus small folk in these parts and Amory she backs it up because she's so frustrated that her her people would lie to their own lords while the small folk themselves are still pissed about what the game playing has done to them and their families and their lives so this could easily spill over soon but Jamie is wise enough to think back on Sir Arthur the winning of the small folk can be an important lesson for him going forward for all these lords though it seems only Jamie will take the hint we've already seen evidence of him being a much better person to those beneath him of late quote marks he took note of the small folk feeling towards South Lannister before he left King's Landing. And perhaps this will be more of use to him going forward if he ever does get that opportunity. Unfortunately, small folk are never ever going to trust Lannister rule after the war because that's who they blame for all this misery. Other people as well, sure, but mainly the Lannisters. And again, we have to say that that phrase I repeat every week, this is Tywin's legacy. That's not fair on Jamie because he's had minimum influence on that in the first place, but also trying to be better, but it's still true. 
Next, we have Sir Arwood, who makes us concentrate yet again on salt pans and the atrocities committed there. Although, I will say it's superb chapter sequencing again, because in our very next chapter, Brienne will also hear about Sir Quincy Cox hiding behind his walls and that whole breaking the really important agreement between lords and the small folk that's been broken again. We're going to talk about that in Brienne's chapter. Far more interesting than the repetition of this bad stuff, although I think George does do that to impress upon us how truly harrowing it is, especially considering this was not a military battle of any kind. There was no advantage to this. It was just evil people being allowed to be evil. But I think far more interesting than that is Jamie yet again shows off his vastly improved detective skills. Here's the quote. Sandor had been hard and brutal, yes, but it was his big brother who was the real monster in House Clegane. So Jamie is one of the only people in the book to give it a second's thought and think about motive and likelihood beyond a mere helm as the sign of this actually being Sandok again. So Jamie's critical thinking skills, they're just improving all the time. He's not really going to get a chance to act on this or discover any further. It's worth knowing that he thinks on it when almost no one else does. Next quote. This is a time for beasts, Jamie reflected, for lions and wolves and angry dogs, for ravens and carrion crows. That's very profound, Jamie. You're right on the money there. We know who the lions and wolves are, that's easy enough. We've got a pair of angry dogs in the Caganes, or at least the idea of them. We've got ravens up in the north of Bran, and there's no shortage of crows, obviously. But perhaps we've gained our largest recently in Euron. So Jamie's really setting the whole table for us here. Yet again, it's the spinning of wine that sends Jamie from the table. But there's also that pure hunger of actually finally seeing Lancel. That's what he's here for, not to wine and dine. On his way to find him, he passes yet more sparrows gathered around eating by the cook fires, just like Cersei saw outside the Sept. And Jamie again has to think that there's almost no chance of getting another harvest and that starvation really is going to be rife soon enough. Even with their rebuilding and things going fairly well, better than in some other places, some effects of the war just can't be outrun. They cannot be left behind, unfortunately. We're going to see that theme, well, sure, in this book, sure, in dance, but really in wins, I think we know it's going to be kicking off, isn't it? So now we come to Lancel. And where is he? He's in the Sept. And Jamie has a surprising amount of scenes in Septs, doesn't he? And always for family members, it seems. This particular scene is of huge importance to him personally and to the realm politically. Before he can get there, he, like his sister a few chapters ago, has his way barred by the sparrows now. Now they're not just there filling up space, they're actively stepping in front of Lannisters, of royal family, basically. And Lannisters, they're not used to this sort of treatment. Jamie even mutters the immortal you know who I am. This is always a good line to make you look like a fool. They know he's the Kingslayer. They don't care. The power over the common man that so many have taken for granted for so long is waning in favour of the faith, or really just in favour of anti-Lannister feelings, like we said at the beginning, with those farmers being protected by their own people now. And the upper class aren't really sure how to handle this change. In this case, it's Lancel who comes to the rescue. I don't know what would have happened if he hadn't. In the meeting inside, we find out how far Lancel has truly gone. He's sleeping beneath the altars, he's fasting, he's dreaming, and he's definitely not worried about bringing up his crimes in front of the man who, once, would have been the last person he wanted finding out. We knew Lancel had changed, we saw him be different when we met him in King's Landing, but this is obviously far past that. He's going almost as extreme as he can, which is fitting in a book that highlights religious extremism, at least about the foundational religion that's always just kind of been there without actually doing anything. And again, it links to the rise of the High Sparrow in King's Landing. Cersei is worrying about Lancel and what he's told the High Sparrow. Jaime is worrying about Lancel and what it means for Darry, sure, but also what he's been doing with Cersei. Amore clearly has the same thoughts as she searches for someone more traditionally masculine to defend their lands, which we saw back in the feast. 
and Strongball makes his promise to return here. And the last we hear of him in this book a bit later on is Strongball riding back towards Nari to fulfil it. So at least Nari is going to be taken care of. That side of the equation, well, taken care of, we don't know what's going to happen to it. But that's fairly removed, whereas Lancel, High Sparrow, Cersei, that triangle, not so good. So don't worry, Jamie. I think you might be right in focusing on which one's in more danger here. Lancel is doing what almost none of the main three Lannister children could ever bring themselves to actually do. Leave the family behind. Jamie and Tyrion especially come to work against the general Lannister fault line, but still keep their name. Lancel is not doing that. He's saying, screw your duty and your lions. I'm not keeping Amory. I'm not keeping Dowry. I'm off to join the warrior's sons. So Cersei's influence on Lancel is never-ending. She pushed him towards religion in the first place, and now, by opening up the faith to be armed, she's indirectly allowed him an avenue to abandon his seat and weaken the crown's hold in it. Good job, Cersei. She couldn't deal with the High Sparrow because he doesn't play her game, and Lancel is now the same. There's no reasoning with someone that far gone. And Jamie now is realising how absolutely moronic Cersei's decision is and the kind of chaos it invites. Let's have this quote from Lancel. The brave man slays with a sword, the craven with a wineskin. We are both kingslayers, sir. That's a cool line. Jamie's argument that Robert wasn't a true king, that a stag is a lion's natural prey, is paper thin. You could easily say Ares was not a true king and how he acted, but Jamie's not even thinking on those lines. He's just spouting Lannister rhetoric about them being superior to everyone else and therefore above refute. We've discussed him having that attitude growing up due to his sword skill, but it's definitely a family trait as well. We can easily see Cersei making a similar argument. She does it all the time. Besides, it's really just Jamie being impatient. He doesn't want to hear about that crime. It's the other one he came to die for. Yes, yeah, so the big part of this scene, sure, okay, Lancel straight on admitting that he helped kill Robert, which Jamie only cares about so much as it making them both Kingslayer, but really it's that he slept with Cersei, which Jamie absolutely, positively cares about. I think it says something about how bad the relationship with Cersei has gone in this book, because if it was even slightly better, you might have killed Lancel right here for the admittance of these crimes. If Jamie thought there was still really a chance of Cersei and him being together happily ever after, or perhaps if it was a very slightly earlier version of Jamie hearing this, I think we might know the result. As it is, he feels only sorrow. We also get this line here, which I'm just going to include because I know you will love it. It is not treason unless you finish inside. I bet you someone's got a tattoo of that somewhere. I bet someone out there, maybe one of you listening, has that as a tattoo. I'm willing to bet my whole aisle on it. Jamie, he has to ask if Lancel forced Cersei. He's almost hopeful that he did. That's how desperate he is. Because even that would be better to him than Cersei actually wanting another man, actually choosing to betray him. That's more than he can stand. As confirmation comes flooding in, what Tyrion said is now so much more solidified. Cersei's own barbs are no longer just attempts at wounding, but bitter truths. It is all true. Everything he never wanted come true. And with that confirmation is that Tyrion wasn't lying, which might convince him that Tyrion's actual lie of killing Joffrey is also definitely true. He might now just take the whole thing, everything Tyrion said, as blanket truth. We'll have to keep watch for that coming back one day. But like I said earlier, there is a lot more thinking of Tyrion in a positive light in general in this chapter. Jaime even thinks Tyrion would have known. So even with their complicated relationship, Jaime knows his brother's worth. I think he might actually be longing for him a little bit here. As again, especially in comparison now that he's just found out his supposedly favourite sibling what she's been up to. Jamie, he might think Cersei's a fool. He might have had all these arguments with her and their relationship might have disintegrated over the beginning of this book. But it's this that drives the nail down. He could have coped with all that. This is the actual portrayal. Being a bad queen or an angry drunk, 
that's fine. He could have made a piece for that eventually. He'd have been willing to try, if she was, at least. But this is different now. This is the realisation that all those years of vow keeping and giving his life for hers has not been reciprocated. Out of everything that Jamie's ever had to betray about his oaths and vows and whatever, the one thing he's never done is betray Cersei in that way. And she has to him. So this really is now the end of their relationship. So now the focus swings back to Lancel leaving Derry. We have this quote from Jamie: Even if this is true, you are a lion of a rock, a lord. You have a wife, a castle, lands to defend, people to protect. If the gods are good, you have sons of your blood to follow you. Why would you throw all that away for, for some vow? It's an incredibly telling quote by Jamie. As Lancel points out straight away, Jamie threw all this away for a vow as well. So is this inner Jamie lamenting the life he gave up for vows that he found out weren't so noble, perhaps? At the same time, there's that leaning towards looking after the lesser people again. Ruling with pride is a Lannister, yes, they love that bit. Producing sons as well, cool. But Lannister defend, people to protect, that's much lower on the list for a guy like Tywin. So it's amazing those values have slipped through to Jamie. Perhaps this is Jamie seeing a young knight who at least had potential beforehand being bulled around by the political forces above him, just as once happened to Jamie in his youth. After the two cousins split, it's quite funny that Jamie goes straight to the godswood after telling Lancel he's forgotten all the words of prayer to the seven. Firstly because the old gods, they don't require words in their prayers, but also because Jamie is perhaps looking for a more truly spiritual experience than the seven have ever provided him. We do know he has some experiences with weirwoods, but he doesn't actually focus on that just yet. Jamie is now clearly in the darkest mood we've seen from him in quite a while with this news about Cersei. And it's now he chooses to spill all about what he and Cersei got up to the last time he was here. How cheating on Robert eventually became not enough for Cersei. Her blood was so high at the time with all this ire stuff, the only thrill that could satisfy her was cucking her husband there and then. Jamie doesn't think on it here, but even back then Cersei apparently equated violence with sexual pleasure, as he remembers her talking about Aya during their lovemaking. That's another link between her and Ares there, isn't it? We get reminded also of Jamie's capacity for evil. He would have killed Aya to keep Cersei happy amidst that. That's how deep his obsession goes, or his obsession went, anyway. It's the same thing we happened with Bran, we saw that one firsthand. And this is what we talked about earlier, with Illyn learning certain secrets. Not sure what he could do with this specifically, but still. We started with Noble Jamie at the beginning of this chapter, quite happy Jamie, sharing advice with Peck Jamie. We finish with Dark Jamie. Dark on this festering mantra that he's always had turning out to be true. Dark on, again, this really being the end for him and Cersei now dark on this whole great lie his life has been at least in the last few years and just makes him question everything she was his sole motivation his sole purpose and that's gone now again fair enough that was already slipping away but this is a whole different level this is worth way more than any of the bad ruler bad mother whatever vibes he was getting from her before she could chuck a thousand wine glasses at his head it wouldn't amount to the same amount of her learning this is but we will talk more about Jamie and slightly darker Jamie later on in Jamie 5. For now, we will move on to our second chapter, it is Brienne 6. And now, you and I, my fellow green folk, we are lucky indeed because we're really into the thick of it in terms of great Brienne chapters now as we head towards the end of her arc. Amazingly, we have just two Briennes left after today, which is mind-blowing to me. We have the gentleness of the quiet isle first today, then the pure violence of the inn at the crossroads, and then the misery slash more amazingness of re-meeting Lady Stoneheart at the end. So what a run we're about to go, and what a free chapter ending we're about to get treated to. 
I would say Brian 7, the next chapter after this, is at least, at least, top five in terms of most important The Song of Ice and Fire chapters in terms of thematics, definitely. We'll deal with that later when the time comes, but wow, yeah, so we've got that coming. That is such an important chapter. And today, to be honest, is no less important. We're still fresh off the broken man speech in the last Brienne chapter as we come to a place where we may well find, we do find, the ultimate broken man in the Sandorca game. Either his memory or his actual person, it doesn't actually really matter at the moment. The result is essentially the same for now. The Sandor, we knew, the violent hound of the opening act from A Song of Ice and Fire, has supposedly found some peace in this bubble away from war that we're going to be introduced to. And even as Brienne is presented with the benefits of leaving such fighting behind, as advised to her here and previously, she ends up doubling down on her baseline philosophy. Winning and losing do not matter. If you can protect someone, you do, no matter what. And that's an incredibly important setup for her seventh chapter. That's what she really focuses throughout this chapter and especially at the end. And we managed to wrap that all up in the shortest of the Brienne chapters, interestingly, as we reach this little break amongst so much terribleness for Brienne. She really is entering the bowl here. And the place itself looks nice, as the opening paragraph tells us. How often do we get that these days? Most things are ruined or burned or desolate. As it happens, there's a lot of that on the other side of the quiet aisle and salt pans, but it's not lost that we're visiting somewhere rare here. Yes, okay, we've just seen a renewed dairy, but the quiet aisle has been like this the whole time. And looking at George's description, it looks like something out of Breath of the Wild, to be honest. You come around a nice hill, it's nice and windy, and you see like, this little windmill and this little farm on the side there. It looks cool. It looks nice. Kind of a Studio Ghibli feel to it as well. We get some tension built from the from the beginning here when Maribold mentions that they are near salt pans that is just on the other side of the water and it can be got to quite quickly because that's been talked of through the whole book almost last chapter included as you remember so now readers are thinking oh, do we actually have to go there do we actually have to see it it's going to be a horrible view and there's also the possibility of meeting supposed sandal ironically given what happens in this chapter the imagery we get as they begin making their journey towards the isle isn't well it's always amazing with george isn't it but it's particularly beautiful to me again that studio ghibli feel that breath of the wild feel golden coins in the sun george says there's a strong view and it reminds me of nimble dick with brienne dropping those golden coins down into his grave but we also have talks of vows of silence and penitence right off the back of seeing lancel trying to atone and do those things himself things that might have been different if Lancel had actually gone silent and stuck to it in terms of Cersei and High Sparrow, but alas, that did not happen. They're thinking that as they start moving towards the like I say, and Merybold, he really, really proves his value now when getting them across the path of faith, as it's called. It's an amazing defence system where he goes not even towards the eye, we've got to kind of go out into the bay a little bit and then back and forth and whatever else. And it, apparently, this system works, even while right in the middle of a war zone. And there's basically no chance of discovering that route by accident, is there? You get the sense that the Quiet Isle has just been able to sit and watch the violence of history, not just recently, but before as well, happen around them without being involved. So it's not so different from any other faces, really, is it? And also not too different from Queen's Crown, just in terms of this defence system in the water. Now as we actually reach the Isle, Brienne's able to see some people, and, well, here's the quote. It says, Two had wound lengths of wool around the lower halves of their faces as well, so all that could be seen of them was their eyes. The brothers of the quiet Isle can do it so can you everybody mask up please given that we're going to see some definite evils of religion in the coming chapters and we have done in the past as well it's good to continue brienne 5's theme of showing how much good religion can do especially for the small folk 
Coincidentally, it just so happens it is allowed to do good things when removed from the Lord's playing the game. You put them out in this little bubble and everyone's pretty happy. They do really nice things for people who have come over to the other villages and whatnot. And I really hope that the quiet aisle remains quiet. We're right to be concerned that a Euron or some other force might be able to make their way via the ships or change in the weather or even dragons and go on a raid or pillage and just destroy this nice little place because it just seems too nice for George to let it live, doesn't it? And also, there's apparently rubies here, so maybe they're going to come and try to steal them. Who knows? Just before they actually get onto the island itself, Maribold lists where they're all from in terms of this little uh, quintuplet we've got going on. It never occurred to me that we basically have a team made up of the four major kingdoms of the south. Sorry, Dawn, nobody counts you. The Riverlands is a bit murky, okay, but maybe we can attribute them to Maribold. If not, we'll say Dog is from the Riverlands instead. Other than that, obviously, we have Podrick from the Westerlands, Hyle from the Reach, and Brienne herself from the Stormlands. Unique as the Quiet Isle is, Brienne still has to put up with the usual of men being surprised that she is a woman and then giving her funny looks for it. This just happens everywhere, unfortunately. For rereaders, we can see some obvious hints about the Isle's secret inhabitant when Narbut reacts to the news that Brienne is hunting Sadlock again. The news is definitely enough to go a meeting with the elder brother. Lady Brienne is a warrior maid, confided Septon Maribold, hunting for the hound. Aye. Narbut seemed taken aback. To what end? Brienne touched Oathkeeper's hilt. His, she said. That's the badass line of the day, without question. Write it down, everybody. Handsome he may be, but Driftwood was surely whelped in hell. Horse and ship names are important to remember in all of the books, but it really seems that they are kicking up that gear a lot during feast, especially for horses. This one is giving a false name for now, but the description alone is enough for us to all be 99% sure we know this particular horse. Who, it turns out, likes biting off ears so perhaps he should become Brienne's horse at some point that'd be pretty cool I'd be happy with that on the way to the elder brother we finally come across the man himself again so obvious to rereaders all the clues are there once you have the right framing the sheer size of this man the fact he's lame he like dog for example the real kicker once we've put this together is that when chided the gravedigger says nothing and bows his head if this is truly Sandor he really has left the hound behind him because there's no way he would have reacted like that previously. But for now, we leave the gravedigger behind. We go on to the elder brother and we get this really wonderful setting. I wonder if it's George's nod to the Shire with this hermit's hole and the whole idea of being a respite from the evils outside. I sure hope not, considering what ends up happening to the Shire in the books. Actually, the way it's described inside, this is a little cave, it has me thinking of Skyrim again. One of those, again, those water caves that's constantly dripping. You know the ones if you play Skyrim. But, I mean, I, <laughs> I put everything from Westeros into Skyrim to them, so don't be surprised. Brienne shows off her own version of judging a book by its cover when she first meets the elder brother. As soon as she's thinking about how tough he looks, he's giving Septon Maribold a hug. Again, the rereaders triumph because we already know of his background and how his looks make total sense. But for Brienne, that must wait a little while longer yet. Though we have very important matters to discuss, first we deal with legend and rumours. Rhaegar's rubies. Six have been found. We're all waiting for the seventh. I bring this up because this is a fan favourite focus. I quite like the numbers part of it, the end there, the six and waiting for the seventh, because you can apply multiple symbologies to it. We know how much George likes the number seven. But if it is truly those rubies from Rhaegar, then what a giant piece of Westerosi memorabilia this is, or they are. And also, it's another great tie back to the series right at the beginning. Aya and Micah went off hunting for river rubies, you might remember. You remember such innocent times as those? 
I wonder if those rubies will enter the story in any way in the future. It would be incredible, it would mean an incredible amount to Daenerys if she was ever presented with one and told it belonged to her brother, or to John Connington for that matter. I know a lot of people, the mere mention of rubies, has them thinking that Rhaegar himself is on the Isle. Now as a rule, I'm against any Rhaegar as a live idea, whether it's here or up on the wall or whatever you like, I'm not a fan of those theories, but just to entertain the idea, it would be incredible to have the hero of the story as George has referred to him in the past die in this metaphorical way, to only to actually live, but simply abandon the prophecy for or the safety of the entire world for the safety of this island. I can't see that being the case, but it's incredible to think about. I don't think he'd ever leave the Anna, but if he woke up in the aisle and then heard about what happened or was injured, blah blah blah. Again, that's not my arena. I'm not a fan of those theories, but interesting to think about. What I really want to point out is it's Sir Hyle who perks up on the mention of the rubies. I already suspect him of being in this venture for the cash. So is that true or am I just falling into a George trap? Is he just leading me along with my assumptions? Could well be. Back to the elder brother. Too many corpses these days, the elder brother sighed. Our gravedigger knows no rest. So that's a standard line on first read. You don't focus on that too much. But beyond is perhaps a hint that this new life of Sandor's is not as serene as promised. Our gravedigger knows no rest. Is he being literal or figurative there? We don't know. The larger point about the river and, and all men of the war floating down it once they are dead, plus women and children, cruelly, is one that Brienne already came across back at Duskendale, if you remember. The idea that all soldiers end up the same regardless of rank or allegiance. It's a superb way to frame the war as pointless, as blind in terms of who it harms, and ultimately of how unfair it is. It's a really strong connection back to early Chris Brienne, and really it's tying her whole theme and art together isn't it and i just want to point out another seemingly standard line it is hard to speak of sin with signs and nods are you paying attention Ellen? because we keep wondering about what sins you might speak of and wex manages it pretty well doesn't he and in the next book so who knows for the thousandth time we must hear again about salt pans probably in the greatest detail yet especially in terms of hints about biter and brienne's own fate yes these horrible atrocities we have to hear about and this time it is specifically included how Sir Quincy Cox broke the ultimate agreement, leaving a small folk to die while he hid, as, as we discussed briefly in the Jamie chapter. Here's the quote. As she lay dying, her worst curses were not for the men who had raped her, nor the monster who devoured her living flesh, but for Sir Quincy Cox. That is pretty damning that this woman, who had suffered unimaginable pains, uses her last words in this way to damn Sir Quincy Cox. And it shows how important this breaking of the agreement is for people important enough even that the elder brother cannot bear to forgive the man it's really hard hitting we discussed this previously in the book but this is such a huge moment thematically this is how this society is set up and while we've got plenty of examples of the highborn portraying their responsibility this is the most obvious and the most felt the argument is that they could not win so why bother especially with young people in the castle for Brienne, that is irrelevant you've spoken a vow you have a task the end result is not the point. You do it, whatever the chance of victory is. And okay, the issue of children does muddy the water somewhat, but that's my taking of it, not Brienne's. He could have tried, Brienne thought. He could have died. Old or young, a true knight is sworn to protect those who are weaker than himself, or die in the attempt. That's beautiful. And it's so easily relatable to her coming chapter with the no chance, no choice stuff. This is why Brienne is the very best. Standing up to evil against overwhelming odds, with no thought giving to what it might mean her or her safety after eating and podrick going off of sir hyle it's time for brienne to have another conversation first about salt pans and how it's basically just gone now a whole town wiped out by the rage and frustration of outlaws that's 
not like entire places are just wiped off the map often just remember and then about what she intends to do there as always we are back to a highborn maid of three and ten the elder brother finally gives some much needed answers to brienne mainly that she is chasing Aya, not sansa so that's great news that Aya is alive or was at least alive recently but also means brienne still has no idea where sansa is but now we get to more concrete information about sandal clegane finally after a billion references throughout this book we are told that this supposed Sandor laying waste to the Riverlands is indeed only supposed. The elder brother claims Sandor Clegane is dead and his helm was left at his grave, picked up by some outlaw and has now been used throughout the book to confuse identity. The elder brother gives damning and accurate summations of Sandor's life. He found no worth in anything, at least not until he met the Stark sisters. He's also dead on about Gregor being Sandor's sole motivation, as we discussed a lot during Storm when he was with Aya. You'd have to go pretty far now to find a fan who doesn't think the elder brother is being metaphorical here. He is saying the Hound, as in the evil broken persona of Sandok again, died where Aya left him. He has now been reborn as the Gravedigger, while the violence of his past is left behind, in theory anyway. Certainly, this fits in with Aya's mercy-giving powers being used for good, yet in a backwards way as she left him alive to deny mercy and comfort. Yet her decision ultimately helped free him from his past and create a peaceful life, again, theoretically. And I could easily see him getting left here at the Quiet Isle. I know how much people want him to re-enter the series in some way, and there's people going on about Game Bowl and all that kind of stuff, but there are also definite avenues for that to happen, true. But I, personally, don't think he'll end up fighting his brother, unless it's for some kind of incredibly noble purpose, and it's definitely possible. It's a much kinder ending to have him released from Gregor's pain and not need bloody vengeance, but it's also incredibly clean, so who can say? Maybe George wants him to pay in some way. Or perhaps his injury is so severe he's lost all ability to fight and that's his own kind of torture knowing that he can't ever go and get Gregor. We also have it admitted that Stranger, the spectre of death as we know, is also a horse admitted as present on the isle. That's fitting that Sandor is there, he who was deaf to so many and who could have been to so many more if not for his time of ire. And so it's always a good naming of his horse. It is true then, she said dully. Sandor again is dead. He is at rest. That's the, how the elder brother responds. So I think we all need to look at that. Even the first time readers surely pick up and go, hmm, well you didn't say yes, did you? Now let's switch focus to the elder brother himself because he is yet another, it's like we're collecting one from each war. Now we have one from Robert's Rebellion. This one actually fought on the Trident. At unimaginable odds of survival, he somehow met, we've met countless lords who fought in that huge battle, but not so much for the actual foot soldiers. I think this might be the, first one we've ever met who just kind of fought there he even says though he never knew my name i wonder if he and meribold set that line up together because that's very close to the broken man speech he also says this when i died in the battle of the trident so he himself says he died on the trident when he, he obviously physically didn't so he can now be pretty sure he's using that same turn of phrase about sandok again he said he died maybe he hasn't you can see the connection and it's quite ironic that this is next to a chapter about the darries who also fought for the dragon now we have a soldier here who did the same so that's that's cool isn't it brienne isn't sure why she's hearing this and it doesn't click that this is a cautionary tale of what was waiting in the world it's just someone else begging brienne to go home but from a place of care rather than whatever the hell randall tarley was selling it's just part of the hero's journey so many who try to take you from the path whether it's smiles or snarls but the true ones keep moving forward towards the goal as brienne does here the older brother is cool but he's also wrong about lance or sorting out the dairy lands i suppose it's unlikely he's ever met him it seems like the elder brother would be horrified to learn about Cersei arming the faith, but, well, that's not our focus here, is it? Because he has a much bigger role to play for Brienne. Here's a quote from Brienne. The freakish one, not fit to be a son or a daughter. All of it came boring out of Brienne then. 
like some black blood from a wound. Yes, those horrible words from Randall did stay with Brienne. Sandor, he needed the elder brother's physical help and spiritual, I suppose, but Brienne, she really needs the spiritual help. She finally lets her loose about these many, many weights she's been dragging with her for her whole life, and particularly on this quest, as guilt overwhelms her. The guilt of perhaps hurting her father's feelings, or maybe being selfish. Guilt, most unfairly, over just being herself. It's painful to deny her father's happiness, and maybe even her own. It's certainly not what everyone else wants, but she does what's right instead, and we finally end with one of the very best tying togethers of, of themes in a chapter, as we look back to Brienne's opinion that the Lord should have done his duty or die in the attempt in terms of salt pans we're talking here. Brienne states that she will do the same. She's faced death, threats, content, and she'll take it all because trying to save these girls is the right thing to do, and trying is better than not trying. That is the simple equation of it for Brienne. Knowing what we know of the final two chapters, the horror she'll experience as well as the unfair blame heaped on her for the trouble of doing the right thing, it's going to be amazing yet infuriating, but like Brienne says, the result isn't the point. She is the true knight of the series. She's the descendant of the former true one who came before, but she is now the ultimate knight of the whole of the Song of Ice and Fire. Set perfectly by being next to Jamie, the Vowbreaker for much of her art, and by being here next to Sandor Kagane, who has inspired a thousand discussions on knighthood. He was the one who wanted to be a knight and was poisoned against it and then concentrated on its falsehoods. Brienne shines bright above both him and Jamie. Here's the quote to finish. I have to find her, she finished. There are others looking, all wanting to catch her and sell her to the Queen. I have to find her first. I promised Jamie. Oathkeeper, he named the sword. I have to try and save her or die in the attempt. Just amazing. Let's leave it there. Let's move from Brienne 6 to Cersei seven so we get to follow up a truly beautiful brienne moment with cersei at perhaps her ugliest we also start with a follow-up to the ironborn ending that we had a couple of chapters ago which seems almost immediate really it's only a two chapter gap but this is a huge moment for the realm there's been complete upheaval in the north the riverlands has been on fire for years now and has been fighting along most of the central eastern coast but the whole idea the crown is selling is that that's all died down now other than the north, they've got this. But it turns out there's now fighting in the most secure part of the kingdom, where most of your food and booze comes from. Your defences are all skewed and they're nowhere near the reach. You don't have an immediate array to react. It's yet another threat to King Tommen's throne. And yet, Cersei is gleeful about it all because it annoys Marjorie and Loras. Wowzers. In fact, as we open, Cersei is more focused on Marjorie's choice of words than she is at the actual news of an assault on her kingdom. Must, she thought. She dares say must to me. She itched to slap the Tyrell girl across the face. Yes, peak Cersei looking down her nose on people in this chapter. We also have her useless counsel on hand to back her up. Orton Merriweather cites counting double or lying to protect their ego in terms of the Reachman. And that's likely because he, that would be his own first port of call. Cersei thinks, my enemies are everywhere and my friends are useless. Yes, friends of your own making, Cersei. She's actively worked to not be friends with anyone remotely useful and has gone out of her way to make enemies of those who are. At least she's admitting her counsellors are useless now, I suppose. With this news, we have Orain Waters musing about the Iron Fleet and the danger they could uh, pose. I always remembered his desertion, his eventual desertion that's coming soon, as taking advantage of foolish Cersei and wanting to go and make some money for himself. That's still the dominating percentage, but I also think he has no drive to be involved with battle against the Iron Fleet in any way. He can kind of see the way the wind is blowing here. No, I don't want to end up doing that. So I'm off. He's a smart guy. 
Meanwhile, Cersei proves to be her father's daughter when thinking that Robert should have just wiped out the Iron Islands after the Greyjoy Rebellion. But rather than thinking on the actual enemy too much, she really focuses on those who are supposed to be her allies. That oath Mace Tyrell left the defence of the Reach in the hands of a hapless weakling. So Cersei again proves that she is prejudiced against the disabled when she believes Willis a weakling because of his leg, that's it. We spoke about this before, how that comes up again and again during that previous chapter, but she just keeps piling it on. She always assumes people are trying to cover up their own mistakes or blames others. She projects her own self onto them, as we just said with Walter Merriweather. We know, actually, Willis is very smart, and he's smart enough to have sussed out the truth about the swing out into the sunset t- sea that the Ironborn did. Marjorie, meanwhile, is dead on about the thousand ships, meaning that this is no mere raid. This is a planned attack designed to make the Reach that much weaker. Key defensive lords have been killed with their key defensive castles taken. This is building to something. It's not usual. It must be incredibly frustrating for Marjorie trying to make these dodd fools and this stupid queen understand. And surprise, surprise, Pycelle and Cersei differ in opinion yet again. And we are siding with Pycelle yet again. We've been doing that a lot lately. You actually have to feel bad for the guy in the same way that we do for Marjorie, as he tries to get through how what Cersei is suggesting about this being Stannis responsible for this attack makes absolutely no sense. You can just feel his exasperation. Cersei's a bit too pleased to be arguing with him properly because she believes she's going to win one way or the other at the end of this confrontation when we get either dead Loras or dead Dragonstone. We'll come to that in a second. She's so set in her ways of pigeonholing enemies that, like we say, she's convinced Stannis is behind the offensive on the shields, completely willing to forego any logic about how that might be possible. She thinks Balon's son might have offered an alliance, so firstly, she's not listening to the fact it's Balon's brother in charge, but she's also not considering the type of person Stannis is. He would never accept an alliance, and it'd be stupid to try suggesting such a thing to him. There's definitely no winning Northern friends that way, and again, Pycelle was the only one to point this out. But Cersei just goes on and on about how stupid Pycelle is to her. And just to prove he is the smart one, he also says that the rearming of the faith is foolish too. Now Cersei isn't completely wrong that Highgarden should answer this threat, although it's not exactly going to win you many friends, is it? Especially when they just came out of the Reach to help you out in your hour of need on the Blackwater. But you are currently using all their ships to, again, get you out of another bind. So you do have responsibility actually, because you're using their resources for your own purposes. So you need to give the lawnmower back a bit. They're in the one these tending, don't you? And clearly, this is a much bigger threat than Dragonstone, as Marjorie and, in a minute, Loras will try and get across. The pure numbers of the Ironborn, their ability to move quickly across the map, the violence they are inflicting. Left alone, Dragonstone will do nothing. There's hardly any people there. They've got nowhere to go anyway, unless they really want to go all the way north, which will actually take them further away from you. So... Might want to let that happen. Whereas the Ironborn are active and mobile. They could do anything. Maybe they will. Beyond that, the Shield Islands are symbolic as well as practical. And as Loras now points out, they are opening the door right into the Southern Kingdoms. Especially the prosperous realm that your entire crown is essentially based on. For food, for money, for soldiers, for allies. I do enjoy how wound up Marjorie is about it all. It paints her well as a queen who cares for her people. And we'll talk about that image in a moment. But it's also just like she's had enough of Cersei's bullshit. So she leaves it to Loras to point out the flaw in Cersei's logic. He gives us an account of how many men Garland and Willis can raise and how quickly, and the deep irony of this is if Cersei gave them full leave to defend their home with all they had, I think they probably would eventually smash Euron's force, especially if Victorian has already departed and is halfway to Marine. 
But even without that, the pure numbers would at least allow them to repel most ground assaults. There's just so many soldiers in the reach. You add their actual ships to it as well, you're okay. The Ironborn will always have the kicker on the waves, that's true. But remember how most of the Ironborn captains did not want war. They wanted reaving. They will not want to invest in a long, drawn-out, minimal success campaign miles from home, as we discussed in Vectarian last week. They've already been beaten down by war recently. And they've just had a bunch of fun in the shields. Most like they will just return to the Iron Islands almost immediately if the Tyrells and the Reach come out in force. But obviously, Cersei doesn't allow that. There's this quote from Loras here when Cersei suggests uh, looking for help elsewhere. Pirates out of Myr and Lys, you mean, Loras said with contempt. The scum of the free cities. And they bring that up to mention uh, Sandor Sam. He's probably looking for some new employment opportunities at the moment. Maybe she'd look there. Maybe that's how he comes back into the story. Cersei makes her incorrect argument now that her current conquests are more important than the shields. Again, not bothering to think more than one move ahead, if that. The shields essentially means the majority of the reach. Neither Dragonstone or Storm's End are going anywhere, like we said. At least not in the way she believes in terms of Storm's End. That actually will go somewhere fairly soon. You can at least leave a minimal force there to maintain a siege and, and head off to deal with the bigger enemies. But no, she's just obsessed with her, her classic enemies, the ones that she always thinks is danger to her. So the whole thing is really going nowhere until Loras makes a suggestion. Here's a quote. No one had given Cersei such a lovely gift since Sansa Stark had run to her to divulge Lord Eld's plans. And it certainly is a gift that Loras not only wants to leave himself, but leaves Marjorie's side as well. It requires a slight switch in Cersei's plan for Marjorie, but overall it's going to make everything much easier. Loras is far from perfect, but I tend to believe he not only wants to go and save Dragonstone for glory, although that is probably part of it, but because he generally wants to help to protect his homeland and more importantly his brothers. Another part to consider is that the Tyrells are politically conscious. I'm not sure how much this plays into Loras's thinking in, in comparison to Marjorie or the others, but Elena will have likely preached how the Tyrells do not have the command over the Reach they'd like everyone to think that they do. The reason the Reach we meet in the series is so together and powerful is because everyone is in a great situation. There's lots of food, lots of sunshine, everyone's got good land and big armies. It's not like the grumpy, squabbling riverlords. Everyone in the Reach is all content. But if things start going wrong, and something being insulted, or the food dries up, or whatever, they aren't going to be so united, and the Tyrells won't look so rosy. I think Loras mainly wants to help his brothers, like I say, and brother and sister both actually care about their people, but the collective family knows this needs to be dealt with strongly and quickly if they are to maintain their position. It seems strange, actually, that we say goodbye to Loras here. We won't see him again in the whole series, although I suppose we're getting close to that being true for all of King's Landing soon enough. The Tyrells are dropping quite quick. Only Marjorie and Mace are really left to us. I have to say, Loras and Dragonstone is one of the mysteries I most want to find the answer out about, especially when I was writing the future part of the uh, Dragonstone chapter for the Castles book. It just bore away at my mind. And it's mainly because it's one of those rare questions where both answers seem equally likely to me. I can buy that Loras is alive as easy as I can buy Loras is dying. What's going on with Dragonstone and any possible shipments of Dragonglass, plus if the castle is being searched for dragon eggs or other treasures down there in the fires, that's all going to be of major importance and I'd personally prefer Loras to be alive and up to something, but I really can be pushed either way. As the scene closes, I remind you that Cersei asked Pycelle for a word, but then got distracted by Loras, and she never actually does have a word of him. It's probably just a dressing down, but we are left to wonder. And also, a quick reminder as we're talking about Dragonstone here, it's Roland Storm, the one from Davos' spring of Edric Storm, that has been left in charge of Dragonstone. 
Now he originally declared for Renly, so it's possible Loras has a previous with Roland, or perhaps Loras is still real mad at him for switching sides to Stannis, especially if he's still suspicious about Renly's death. I don't know if we'll ever be privy to that uh, interaction, but I'm hoping we are in some way. Cersei again considers herself the ultimate winner no matter what during this situation. Either Stannis will lose, or the Tyrells will, never her. It also helps with her Marjorie Osney plan, apparently. She has the arrogance to laugh about it all she's walking out here. And again, Pycelle, of all people, has to be our moral compass when he's like, why are you fucking laughing for, you weirdo? He tried to talk to the Sensenter about the rearming as well, like we said, but that is shouted down as well. So, Pycelle is honestly trying his best here. I know how unlikely a figure it seems, and what a sign of the times that is, that he's basically the one trying to save the city now, but there we are. We switch from Pycelle to Kyburn for the next scene, and we get a lot of hints from him about this potential champion with his huge armour. It's obvious on reread, but I suppose even for first-time readers, we have to figure it's Gregor Kagane he's talking about, because who else would Kyburn have in his dungeons, if indeed it is someone from the dungeons, which does sound like, to be fair. But even then, how? How does that work? Kyburn claims no living man can take Gregor on, or can take this champion on. And it's a shame Beric Dondarrion is no longer with us. If he qualified as a non-living person, it would have been great to see him finally complete his original Ned Given mission and slay Gregor again. Another quote from this interaction. At night, Cersei sometimes heard soft sounds, even in her own apartments. Mice in the wall, she would tell herself. No more than that. I bring that up because I'm pretty sure Varys used to call his spies mice. It would definitely seem a Varys thing to know. Everything that Cersei has gotten up to in her bedchamber of Lancel with the Kettleblacks, and also now with Taina later in the uh, in the chapter. It would be very interesting to see if Varys will try and manipulate that, that last one to his advantage now. Or any of the previous two as well. We get some setup for later on, with Cersei thinking about Taina replacing Robert in their marriage bed, when Cersei gets to imagine what it would be like to play the Robert in the situation as she replays her own abuse at the hands of the king. And while we talk about how horrible Cersei is, fairly, these awful experiences should not be discounted when totting up both Cersei and Robert as people. We can look at her wanting of someone in the bed next to her as an actual sign of humanity. I know they're rare, but they are there. She does long for comfort and contact and the feeling of safety as anyone does, though she would be loath to admit it. And that makes it all the more difficult with what she does with that comfort at the end of the chapter. We'll discuss that in a minute. Note that ending also ties in with Cersei's high suspicion of Taina, thanks to Taina's questions. She thinks she catches herself speaking so openly about her plans and she actually thinks, oh, hang on, I really need to rein it in a bit here. We also get lots of thoughts about Rhaegar in this little passage yet again and that's quite funny since it's next to the chapter of all his rubies. Maybe, anyway. She repaid my kindness with betrayal. Cersei thinks this about Sunel, Sansa, Malara Heatherspoon. She'll probably soon add Felice Stokeworth to the list. There's nothing short of psychopathic behaviour to believe that she was kind to those girls. Sunel is probably her best bet for actual betrayal and she still hasn't even got any actual evidence of that. So I think I should highlight that sentence particularly because, yeah, psychopathic behaviour. Let's move on to another passage, a quite important passage for the chapter before we reach the ending. It's another Cersei's plans falling completely apart regarding Stokeworth. And basically it fell apart in the worst way. If you remember a couple of chapters ago, or her last chapter maybe, she gave the Stokeworths, also Bowman, this mission of dealing with Bronn, making it look like an accident and basically getting Stokeworth back under control. That has not worked. So now Cersei loses two of her only loyal friends, they're gone. Stokeworth is now officially removed from any control, which was lo looking likely to happen anyway, but has now happened all the quicker, 
And worst of all, Bronn knows she specifically planned to deal with him, to have him killed. He knew she was an enemy, sure, he's not an idiot, but now she's being proactive. And you can be sure he's going to be proactive in ensuring his own survival. That's the very first thing we know about Bronn. Plus, he's now got a castle's worth of men loyal to him. He's actually got real power to contend with, which is yet more men lost to Cersei should she need to summon them if the city comes under attack. She says a war on the doorstep of King's Landing is not what she needs. And yeah, she really does not need that right now, especially since Bronn might still have some friends in the city watch as well. Now, to be fair, Bauman definitely was a fool about it. Anyone could see that Bronn is not the type of man who would respond to a duel fairly. Although having said that, Cersei should probably have seen that Bauman is definitely not the type to deal with Bronn at all. He's too pompous, he was too sheltered to have hunting accents or the like arranged. He's a man who has apparently lived his life in the lists and had a cosy time of it in pretend battles and pretend fights. Bronn is not about that life. So now the real world is here and Bowen suffered, unfortunately. He's gone. Still, it is impossible not to feel for Felice here. She's not a particularly redeemable character, with her caring for her clothes before her mother, etc. But come on, this is rough. Her husband has just been killed, stabbed through the eye, I believe. Her mother, she's as good as dead now under bronze control. And she herself has nowhere to turn. And for all her trouble, she is given to Kyburn. Cersei willingly gives her friend, a woman who has turned her zero wrongs, who actually tried to genuinely help her, she gives her to the worst fate imaginable. She must never see the light of day again, she says. Kyburn will later tell us, Felice has been rendered unable to feed herself, but she will eventually die screaming down in the dark. Well, okay, let's let that sink in. It's horrible to think about, I know, but let it sink in. And think about how bloody stupid and evil that is from Cersei. She reacts too quickly. She's, she's more concerned with Felice pointing a potential finger than realising that there is at least potential for using Felice as a rallying point to retake Stokeworth a bit later. She is the heir, after all. Instead, she effectively does Bronn's job for him. He wanted rid of Felice, well, she's definitely gone now. It is utter evil. In the blink of a chapter, the Stokeworths, who have always kind of been part of the background of this city, now only consists of Lawless, who is essentially a prisoner to Bronn. And like I say, this is one of the most evil acts of Cersei's career, which is a pretty full list by now. This is probably the worst chapter so far in terms of Cersei's awfulness, I would say. Bronn was no more than an annoyance, to be sure. So that's Cersei trying to convince herself. She says she's surrounded by enemies again. It's that me-against-the-world mentality that has got her far, sure, but also cut her off from many, many avenues of success in the city now she's actually got power. In the end, her thoughts all come back to Jamie, that rock that never had to be counted in the me-against-the-world thing previously, and how he is now also gone. Everything's going so wrong for Cersei. She now has an enemy relatively close that she actually knows about in contrast though she likes to make up like Tyrion or Stannis or the one she can't even see like the High Septon. It leads to a scene that's just a whole big mess of Cersei under stress. She's finally at least realising that the city is slipping from her fingers. There's years of pent-up aggression, years of frustration about how she's been treated by the men of her life, particularly in the marriage bed and there's also her essential hatred of womanhood that we've spoken about before. Now, I want to point out, I'm certainly not qualified to talk about the, the thinking and the emotional states going on here, but I will try my best. I'll start with this quote. I am the queen. I mean to claim my rights. So this whole thing with Tane, I know you know what I'm talking about here at the end of the chapter, is a very troubling scene overall. The way that Cersei gives pleasure first, but actively seeks the giving of pain. She's thinking about Robert the whole way through, but we can definitely see some Joffrey in here as well with that desire to cause pain. I wonder if Taina planned for things to ever go this far. It seems like she did. 
It can't rule out that Tana actually is attracted to Cersei and this is all genuine. We don't know enough about the woman to really ascertain that. Whatever the truth, she puts on a convincing performance here, but that isn't what Cersei is aiming for. Even at the peak of Tana's enjoyment, Cersei is imagining herself as the boar that killed Robert. She has to turn it to violence and negativity again. There is no joy in the giving of joy for Cersei. We have the next quote. It was still no good. It had never been good with anyone but Jamie. So like we say, sexual gratification is not what Cersei finds her is even really looking for. She's only ever actually enjoyed sex with Jamie because Jamie is the only one she's ever loved or truly desired, which I suppose is quite wholesome in its way, but not really for Tana here. She doesn't truly desire Tana. She doesn't allow Tana to reciprocate. She's just experimenting with her own power over people and trying to find some validity in what Robert did to her time and time again. If she can find something that feels good in it, she might be able to understand why Robert did it a bit more. It can make a bit more sense, but unfortunately, she does not. And instead, we see violence against Tana, like we've seen with Felice and Sunel. Cersei is unfortunately as big an enemy to women as anyone else. She seems to become ever more like the husband she hated. She's not a great ruler, first, nor was he. The drinking, okay, we've we've compared that between them all the way through since Game of Thrones. Now she wants the ability to impose physicality like he did. It's ironic because at the same time she actually believes herself a better ruler than Robert, which is an interesting discussion. I say Robert definitely had a way, way, way more stable court and people around him, but he wasn't quite so proactive as his own demise. He was simply not as evil, he's just lazy, he just didn't want any part of it. Cersei is much worse for that. And we have also the boar comparisons, like we said. The, Rob, the bed, the Robert, it's all just linked in with him in Cersei's mind, even at the end with this it had never happened line. She is being Robert in this scenario. And like I say, I'm far from the person to speak about such a scene, but I think we can really see there's nothing sexual here. It is just Cersei trying to experiment with her own power and control and work out, not even work out, but just trying to gain some validity, some sense of that situation she had to suffer through horribly we should point that out horribly for so many years but we shall leave it there we shall leave our third chapter and head on to our last is another jamie we return to him indeed with jamie five and in this chapter we return to riverrun for the first time since midstorm and given what major place it was in the first act well it sure is good to see it again yes hooray riverrun you know how much i love riverrun we also get a look at the phrase being useless in this chapter in all respects, uh, infighting, already threatening to overwhelm them. We meet a couple more important Lannisters and paint a not super encouraging picture of the modern Riverlands before actually getting to talk with Brynden Tully next chapter, next time out. So you know how much I'm looking forward to that. Yes, Brynden Tully and Riverrun talk. I really am being spoiled. The battle lines, or the siege lines rather, uh, they're getting drawn, but nicely this is a chapter about jamie's changed character we have him enjoying the ride yeah that's good he has a great interaction with davin lannister but even better one with jenna the scene stealer later on but that's later on let's start off with this first new lannister of the day davin our new warden of the west and how he's quite a different lion from those we've met previously he definitely looks the part of a lion sure he's all golden long-haired etc but he's actually pretty jovial he's pretty positive and seemingly likes his family hmm yeah, quite the different sort, an actual decent Lannister, if we might be so bold. Is he a bit laddish, sure, and a bit boastful, but we'll take that when compared to the personality traits of his other Lannister family members. Makes you wonder what could have been if he had been born into the important part of the Lannister family rather than where he is. They meet on the ride towards Riverrun, and well, one of the first things we have is this unfair 
blaming of Catelyn for Jamie's hand. And he says, how, how did these stories get started? That's something we see all the way through this book, how different stories get spread around and how easy it is for kind of those whispers to be changed along the way. Perhaps we have this more in this book than any other in the in a Game of Thrones, maybe probably apart from a Game of Thrones itself. So Davin spat. As for him and his brave companions, I told your father I would forage for him, but he refused me. Some tasks are fit for lions, he said, but foraging is best left for goats and dogs. Yes, we can believe you, Davin, because that seems a pretty timinish sentiment that he believes foraging is beneath someone like a Lannister, yet is quite happy to benefit him from it. Take yourself all the way back to the Green Fork when we compared the meals Tywin and his officers were eating compared to the common foot soldiers. Then again, food was just more plentiful back then, wasn't it? So they had more choice. And I want to point out that Jamie is laughing in these early interactions with Davin. As we said last week and earlier as well, he's so much more at home in this type of environment with these type of people, having a joke about the squires, etc., etc., just being out on the road. And we also get an update on the claiming of Riverrun and all the glory of war, if there ever was such, how it's all just drained away to leave this boring siege. It's all mud and waiting. They don't even get to fight, which Davin would probably welcome. Everything the Freys did at the Red Wedding, where they must have felt oh so pleased with themselves, and it's only led to more frustration and anti-glory. And this type of office, in terms of a siege around Riverrun, makes for quick frustration in terms of work relationships. And Davin is certainly feeling that about the Freys as he gives Jamie this kind of pre-match report. The Freys are feeling it about the other Freys, and those Freys back at the first bunch as well. No one is too happy, basically, and it's only going to get worse. Surprisingly, this is our first up-close look in this chapter at a lot of the Freys who were rather active during the actual Red Wedding. So Jamie is getting drawn ever closer to those O's he swore and his relationship with Catelyn Stark. We were given Merritt as a kind of immediate follow-up in the Storm epilogue, but he was rather a small fish in the grand scheme of things, Red Wedding-wise, and that seems ages ago anyway. Plus, we had barely met him before. Not true with the phrase of today. Though they are not quite present yet, we're already hearing about what they are up to. So let's, let's talk about them a bit now. Ryman Frey is probably the main focus of our annoyance here. He was one of the biggest planners of the Red Wedding, per merit, and he led the attack inside the actual castle. I'm sure you'll remember. The North, nor us, shall never forget, he was the one who murdered Daisy Mormont. So we hate him, whatever else he's done. Since then, he's been given charge of the siege, but has apparently chosen to just live it up instead. Now, who can say if he's been acting this way the entire time, or just recently, but by the time Jamie turns up, it's just drinking and women for Ryman and not much sieging. We could maybe say this is an emotional response to the death of his son Peter, but I doubt it, and I think you do too. Davin Nexlis Edwin, Ryman's surviving son, who you might remember was part of the party, welcomed Rob and Catelyn to the twins, and was also the one that Catelyn snapped when she realised what was going on. It's a shame she didn't leave any scars, I think, again, you would agree. Full of hate is how Devon describes him, and we'll certainly see how that's true as we move on. He's ambitious, he's uncaring, he's a pretty good fray flag bearer. And finally, there's Lord Emmon, the eldest one, the one who actually owns Riverrun now, according to the Crown, and his husband to Jenna Lannister, of course. This is the first time he has appeared on the page since the hand's tourney back in Game of Thrones, so he's yet to make any real impact at all. They might even be our most annoying as we go through these couple of Riverrun chapters coming up here. Just because he's so sneering and grabbing, he treats our beloved Riverrun like a little bauble that he alone has. He reminds us over and over that it is his. When our reader hearts tell us over and over, no, it belongs to the Tullys, we know that, we were here. He even tries to forget the small print, so to speak, and claim he's the ruler of the entire Riverlands now because he has Riverrun, which Jamie will correct him about later on. We'll deal with that. 
there's others as well Walder rivers being the most important but this is a good combination these three of who the phrase are we have a dumb soldier an emotionless hater and a, a grabber an ambitious grabber that is house free everybody more to the point they are all at each other's throats even the ones close in terms of family ties the frays are collapsing in on themselves in every direction and we always like to see that kind of thing don't we moving away from the phrase let's have jamie introduce davin to his squire peck was a hero on the blackwater jamie said he slew two knights and captured two more now i bring that up because i officially want to theorize here and now that peck will eventually meet with pod and form the ultimate buddy cop duo peck pod or pod peck you choose i like peck pod and both of them will roam the lands for years to come punching far above their weight i really do hope that happens now talking of squires jamie's other one is Luz piper brother to mark piper as davin points out here jamie's going to think later on about how the river lord's loyalty is paper thin and mark piper would definitely be one of those were he not still a hostage at the twins so if he ever gets freed as we suspect he will when jamie orders the transport of captives at the end of this book both little lou and jamie could have some tough choices in front of them in terms of loyalties you know the best thing about heroes jamie they all die young and leave more women for the rest of us now that is said in jest and not focused on by jamie but it's a fitting line that we can look at the hero in jamie did die young or so he believed and he's effectively left cersei for other men now so it seems to fit quite well across the board davin's reaction to the news of lancel leaving Darry is pretty spot on he can't believe it, he's flabbergasted and this is while he's joking around about Amory Frey not being a good wife to choose, etc. etc. But the news that Lancel would actually abandon is astounding to him and to the rest of the kingdom as well. This sort of thing is really just not done, especially by two families such as these. And especially in times such as these, it's really quite the scandal. At least Amory was finding a particular comfort in Strongbore. They both seem decent sort, maybe they'll find some happiness. But Jamie is more concerned about the politics of the thing. And the Darys were not happy. So Darry, never a fan of the Baratheon Lannister rule, might have even more reason to support any dragons that might soon appear on the horizon. It's funny that a fray marriage has been set aside, as Jamie notes, this time from the people on the opposite side of Rob. And in this case, they were actually married, although unconsummated, we should note. So it's even worse, isn't it? I doubt Lancel and his family are going to see the same kind of retribution that the Starks did. Jamie, for his part, doesn't show any glee at the Red Wedding as he thinks back on it here. He hasn't really focused on it too much at all so far. He used to think of Catelyn a lot in early Storm in terms of her forced oath that she took from him, part of which will come into play uh, next chapter with Brynden, but he seems to avoid focusing on Rob at all, really. Perhaps because he's actually ended up respecting him a little bit where he handed his own ass to him in the, in the early war there. Now again, Kevin Lannister is just one step ahead. Jamie cannot catch him. He was here, he's not now. I wonder if it would have made any difference if he had still been here. Would Jamie have been able to get through to his uncle and get him back to the city even sooner than he eventually does? Or would they have teamed up and sought the Riverlands out together? That would have been cool. It looks like Jamie probably wouldn't have been able to convince him anyway as Kevin's mood has darkened quite a bit. Maybe because of Devon's naming, although I believe he would blame Cersei, not Devon for that, but more likely because of his inability to get through to Lancel and for his efforts to apparently have been wasted everything he's done for lancel is now just being thrown in his face again this is probably something he blames cersei for fairly fairly i think you agree all right let's talk about the actual siege itself now and ryman he might be a soldier we've established him as such but clearly he has no head for sieges or politics of any kind the noose plan with edmure that davin describes for us here is obviously utterly useless it has one actual shot at working and an 
everything after that is pointless as Devin, again, details for us here. It's a biased view, sure, but Ryman is a clear idiot who probably enjoys taunting Edmure more than actually getting anything out of the whole thing. Don't worry, we do not have to put up with him much longer. Which will majorly contribute to the sense of Stoneheart closing in that's been building in this book, the same way we've had these repeated mentions of supposed Sandor. All roads point to the Riverlands for endings in this book, it seems. But I'm jumping ahead there. We have the news that Roslyn is pregnant, and that's major, major news for Jamie and for the Riverlands at large. That changes the game in terms of Edmure and his future, as Emmon Frey has clearly noted. And this is where Devon outlines the many factions within factions, how many different directions he's being pulled in regards, in regards to Edmure, the assault, this whole siege, and how it's all a big mess, essentially. Although it is nice to hear that Perwin Frey is apparently fine. The logistics of the siege are always interesting to delve into, especially when we're essentially revisiting a battleground we once saw smashed apart in the Battle of the Camps, so the first-time reader might even gain a little hope here in that regard. There's other key parts to note, like Forley Prester's presence, the soon-to-be-useless boom on the river, the fact that the Riverlards are a sullen lot, as Davin tells us. The political picture of the Riverlands really comes into view. They might be beaten, technically, but they're not out, in terms of the Riverlords I'm saying here. They're plonging, they are playing along right now, doing as little as possible and definitely hoping for the phrase to fail. That's all innocent enough for now, but Jamie knows how quickly this could turn into another rebellion if they had anything to rally around again. Something like a free Edmure, or even Riverrun itself if the siege fails. Perhaps Cersei was actually thinking for once when claiming this needed to be sorted out quickly. She happens to be right. Perhaps even more importantly is that there's a time limit on this thing. It was supposed to be easy. The force of the Freys, Lannisters, and at least the presence of the Riverlords all against one castle, how long could it take? Sooner or later, it has to fall, right? Well, apparently not, or not quickly enough. It's the food again, that's the problem. It's running short, the horses can't be sustained. Food is supposed to be an issue for the people inside the castle. That's the whole idea of a siege, remember? Not everyone outside, but that's the way it is. And like we spoke about earlier on in, Bre in Jamie's first chapter of the day, the ability to maintain any sort of army is quickly disappearing. And foragers, which is like their backup to get food, they're disappearing now as well, taken by the shadows on the edge of vision. There's that creeping feeling that returns. Or perhaps they're just taking their chance and legging it because they see how stupid the siege is, how rotten and how useless. Jamie needs quick action or it all falls apart. Oh, and it also turns out the Freys aren't willing to share their food with their apparent teammates. So that would have gone down well if, the, if their siege actually lasted that long. It seems almost certain that without Jamie's intervention, this would have turned into Lannister versus Frey event eventually, which would have been great for Brendan Blackfish to watch from outside his walls as his enemies tear each other apart. Speaking of the Blackfish, let's have a quote. The Blackfish expelled all the useless mouths from Riverrun and picked this country clean. So this is a point that gets brought up often when discussing Brendan Tully, especially if you're a fan of his, because this is obviously not nice for the small folk and a smirch on his record, especially as it flies in the face of Edmure, specifically inviting the small folk in and protecting his people, one of the few lords we ever actually see doing so and we always love Edmure for that. Remember we've seen the opposite several times over especially through Brienne's eyes. What is important here is context though. Edmure took the people in when the Lannisters were on the approach and were burning or killing everything in sight. Now the war has theoretically ended and they will be safe to return to their homes. This sieging army aren't going to attack them. Again theoretically. I think we might know the actual reality of that. Like I say, these besieging armies are supposed to all be on the same side, and these people really do need to get out there and try and get a harvest in. Of course, that's not really going to help by him uh, picking the land clean. 
Or you can view it as Brynden trying to save them from the castle being stormed and then dying in the consequences. But also, you have to say, it works. Because he's picked the land clean and sent the people out, he's got a lot more food, he can win this siege because everyone outside, they do not have food, which he knows. He knows how to use the land against people. We've seen that time and time again in the other war. And like I say, it's working. This siege is failing. So we can't knock him for that. But overall, I think we can just say that the Blackfish is not perfect. As much as I and other people might like him as a character, he is not perfect. He's a soldier, not a humanitarian. And he's going to do whatever he needs, whatever he needs, to fulfill Rob's oath and maintain the home that he loves so dearly. He's doing in Hoster's memory and Catelyn's. Supposedly, he might have even heard about Lysa by now. So he knows he's the only one left, the only free one anyway. So no, he probably isn't worrying about the small folk as much as he should be right now. Let's quickly loop back to these um, foragers and lookouts and everything else being taken off on the edges of vision, like I said. Here's a quote. None bore any wounds, plainly. They had yielded. Strongbore had grown furious at that, vowing bloody vengeance on the heads of any man who would trust up warriors to die like suckling pigs. So we get that constant question of how far is too far, and who did it? Is it the Brotherhood? Is it leftover Northmen? Outlaws? Independent river lords? That's a very important question. It gives, again, that real impression of being surrounded, and just no one knowing what's wrought in the Riverlands, which again will be important for that Winter of Winter prologue, I think you'll agree. Signal fires, they think, as if they're a ring of watchers all around us. So I bring that up because, again, it's got that feeling of surround being surrounded. And there is a lot of Stoneheart slash Brotherhood stuff in this chapter, which, again, I know I'm repeating myself, relates strongly to the Wind's prologue, That just that feeling. I mentioned earlier about this, uh, this issue Jamie might have if the Pipers are to regain Mark and suddenly Jamie has to make a decision about Lou or Lewis. And, well, here's a quote I'll give it to you. Lewis Piper and Garrett Page were both sons of Riverlords. He had grown fond of both of them and would hate to have to give them to Sir Ilan. So Jamie's well aware of the problem that could be facing him, and while well, he's not too happy about it, it's a very Daenerys-type problem looking ahead towards Dance and her own issues with having to kill cupbearers, etc. in her case. Let's pause for a moment and just picture Ryman's failed parlay attempt that we hear about here, because it sounds hilarious and it does make me love the Blackfish even more. But I also have another quote as well. If he could end the siege without bloodshed, then it could not be said that he had taken up arms against House Tully. So we got a little hint of that uh, oath earlier on, and like we say, it's still important to him. Not so long ago, he would have just rode up, stormed the castle, and gone home again. And he still does want to get back to the city, he mentions here. As much as he likes the field, which we've discussed a lot, he does want to get back to King's Landing. Now, is that for Cersei, because he's still you know, in love with her, or for Tommen, because he knows how awful Cersei is? It's getting harder and harder to say, but it looks a lot more like Tommen, I think, as we go, because he is pissed about what he learned in the last chapter. When Jamie is forced to think about Cersei, it's not exactly in a positive light. Perhaps he's been able to keep his thoughts for mostly on the back burner in these last two chapters, but he's dreaming about her and dreaming about her with other men specifically, not surprising, given what he spoke about earlier. That's the bit that really bothers him, of course. He dreams of smashing her face in now, which isn't so different than Tyrion's own thoughts about their shared sister, although Tyrion's are notably darker, I will say. This foreshadowing of him using his golden hand again, already established as a tool for what he sees as good things, both in the theoretical controlling of the land, but also in the physical and dealing with Red Ronnet. And a lot of people look to this little uh, dream sequence here as a way to theorise about Jamie using his hands to kill Cersei. If truth be told, he liked this life. He felt more comfortable amongst soldiers in the field than he ever had at court. So it's a good summary of what we've been saying. It's good to see Jamie put words to our thoughts here in these last two chapters. 
It's great to read it, great to see Jamie realise it and get to enjoy it, especially when he's just been thinking about Cersei and, again, the bad news he had last chapter. He could have just dwelled on her, but instead he's enjoying the field life as we've already detailed. It's real leadership, probably better than his father ever was at it. Kids are even coming up to him and asking to him to be a teacher. This is on the road to Riverrun as we go here. So this might be Jamie at his very best, and we should take a moment and appreciate it, for even a paragraph later, we're reminded that the wolves are still howling, still out there on the edge. And just in this passage of Jamie having a good time wandering around the camp, etc., it's strange to see Raph having such a playful time in the water when we know what is in his past and in his future, for that matter. Now, Jamie might be enjoying, but he still has a need, a goal, and he and Sir Ilan continue their dance. And unfortunately, results aren't what Jamie hoped for. Not for lack of effort, true, but he's still getting beaten down. He goes again and again, because as neat as this picture is, it's still not complete with, for him without the sword. He can't give up hope on it just yet, despite Ilan's laughing at him. And this travelling in a huge party and sneaking off to practice swords again just reminds me of Aya and Micah doing the same, not a million miles from here, but it seems like a million years ago. I just want to mention, actually, before we move on to the next part of this chapter, I'm pretty impressed with Jamie being so happy and being so content, given what he learnt from Lancel earlier on. That's real... You could easily see how that might have just sent him on a spiral and he wouldn't be able to concentrate on anything else. But he's not. He's still able to maintain that maturity and that level of growth that we've seen in King's Landing. And I think that should really, really be applauded and be seen as a, a big moment, achievement for Jamie in his continuing growth. But finally, we get our sighting of Riverrun, our first since the first half of Storm of Swords. And remember, back then, it was a fairly happy place in recent times, and anyway, and for the majority of the castle folk. Catelyn and Rob and the others always had their problems, but it's easy to remember a time that Riverrun was celebrating Edmure's success in the war. But now, it's cold and windy, there are camps back around it, there's even a gallows outside. So the scene has changed. Or has it? The surroundings? Maybe, but Jamie still describes the strength of the castle. He has its beauty in the red-gold light, as it's described, and it actually even looks better than before, stronger than before, apparently. So we love seeing this place again, you know how I feel about Riverrun, especially when Jamie details the flags that are still flying up top. Converse to the powerful, well-organised Riverrun is the Frey camp, bored, dishevelled, reduced to cockfights to keep the troops in line. Even Davin's camp is more productive than this. Yes, the phrase are useless, and Ryman himself is clearly useless, but George also takes this opportunity to share that there are singers within the camp, a fact that will become very important later on as a, and is a great wink to rereaders. Seeing the castle again sends Jamie down memory lane. Recall, he did spend quite a long time here, and not in the most comfortable positions. And to be fair, this part of the world is sending down memory lane every corner, doesn't it? This time, he remembers his youth. He doesn't even bother remembering being imprisoned. He goes all the way back to his youth, back when he was the lowly teen and someone else was the hero. He's just been painted as the teacher, now he's going back to the reverse, as he thinks about having a, to actually fight a man he was once obsessed with. And as Jamie thinks back to that time of his use in Riverrun, we have this interesting quote. Her older sister had seemed more interesting, though Catelyn was promised to some northern boy, the heir of Winterfell. So Jamie is just thinking in dismissed thoughts, but it's still fun to look at this. He, again, he's always been so obsessed with Cersei that even, even labelling her girl more interesting meant he was probably fonder of you than most. So a last alarms, of course, for those two to have met earlier, perhaps, but, well, they'll meet later on instead. The meeting of Freys and Lannisters continues as we get one of each when Jamie gets set up in his own tent. Technically, we've seen Emma Frey on the page before, but the next Lannister is brand new as we meet Jenna Lannister for the first time. The loud, confident sister who, now that I think about it, 
is only the second female Lannister we ever meet behind Cersei, I believe. I would need to check that, but I'm pretty sure. Feel free to correct me. And she's probably about as opposite as Cersei as you can imagine. She knows how to work the room. She seems content, yet realistic about her lot in life. And most importantly, she knows how to properly appraise her family, as we'll find out in a second. Indeed, she's by far the best Lannister in terms of analysing other Lannisters. And that passage on Tywin and his brothers, how they reacted to Tywin's success in different ways, is really an underrated gem. Now, I mentioned on Twitter the other day that whenever I read this scene of Janet Lannister and Emma Frey, I instantly think of the Blackadder II, Blackadder II episode with his aunt and uncle, the, the religious folks who come in, they've got crosses on their shoulders and their foreheads, and I, can't, I think he wants money from them, I can't remember off the top of my head, but that is the image, and given that Blackadder is the best creation of all time, if you haven't seen it, firstly, get the hell off my island, go and watch all of it, but I think you'll know what I'm talking about, go and check anyway. I love that on the meeting, when, um, when Jenna's apologising for Jamie's loss, he thinks she means his hand. We already knew which was higher on Jamie's personal important scale because, of course, she meant her brother, his father, Tywin. And it's actually almost an exact copy of what Joffrey says when Tyrion arrives in King's Landing for the first time and forgets he's supposed to be in mourning. Tyrion says sorry to him. Joffrey says, for what? Awkward. Same here. It's pretty funny Eamon considers it dark days in Westeros because of Tyrion being a kinslayer, given what his family did so recently at the Red Wing. Well, yet there is very little talk of Eamon ever actually being involved in the planning, so, hmm, something to consider. You'd have to think he was involved in some level to get Riverrun out of it, although in a moment he makes it sound like Tywin selected him for this, not Walder. Why? Probably not because Tywin's particularly fond of Eamon, but probably he is of his sister, or was, rather. We can see it as an act of kindness that Jamie lies about Cleos Frey's death i think you'll remember he was part of the traveling party with him and brienne at the beginning of the storm and he is the son of jenna and kevin jamie was a different man back then so this reminder could easily drive him down the guilt road is it right by cleos to lie about him and his end he gives him a much more honorable ending here than is actually true or should he tell the truth well jamie sees it as making two people happy and giving his cousin a better legacy so he's fine to go along with it for now it's significant that Jamie removes his golden hand while replying here as well, because the event that included Cleos dying led directly to Jamie's maiming. So you can forgive him for being just a bit bitter at the memory and being harsh with the truth, but he doesn't. Instead, he's actually kind. Lady Jenna knows her history at least. Every time this faith rearming has been brought up so far, everyone who isn't a member of the faith has said how foolish it is and the bad consequences that are sure to come along with it, and Jenna includes herself in that conversation. So some pretty overwhelming public opinion. I think what we get from this little bit with, about Cersei and the rearming is that Jenna is fed up with the younger generation in general, and Tywin had that air about him too. We quickly learn about the type of relationship that Jenna and Eamon have. The husband makes his grabbing plea about keeping his castle nice and unbroken, and then makes that extra step we spoke about earlier where he tries to say that he's Lord Paramount because he has Riverrun, but Jamie rebukes him. It's not a surprise to see Eamon have that reaction that he does about Peter Baelish being their boss now. It's the same way every highborn reacts to Peter Baelish. But Jenna again shows off her strong personality, effectively dismissing Eamon and having the knowledge of what can't be argued in terms of liege lords. As we get the mini backstory on Jenna and how she came to be married to Eamon, you can almost imagine that this might have been the life that Cersei would have led if Tywin had made different arrangements or if the war had never happened. Having babies behind her husband's back is definitely in her wheelhouse, and she probably kills Eamon after a few years because, as we say, she is no Jenna. 
Jenna, she tries to persuade Jamie that her family and husband would have been a better fit for Darry, perhaps giving us some indication of what's in store for that particular area. But really, this conversation serves to lay out to the reader the importance of which gender Edmure's child is going to be. If it's a girl, smooth sailing. If it's a boy, not so much. It's not an immediate threat, no, but it's a loose end, one that might come back and bite you years later as a rallying symbol. We might see the best example of that ever with Daenerys in this series, so it's worth thinking about. Jenna brings up a great point that no one else ever really seems to click. Robert Aaron does have a legit claim on Riverrun, or will do if this siege goes the way they want. If there is anyone else in this world musing on this, it's probably Peter Baelish. You've got to have a backup plan, right? Not that many people would ever rally for Robert if they were to spend more than five minutes with him, but still, no one else has brought that up yet, so Jenna's showing off her smarts. And she continues doing that when it comes to these political matters, but also just how well she knows the men around her. She knows Eamon will not relent Riverrun. She makes a fantastic point about Lancel replacing the life of Kingsguard with the life of protecting a High Septon. And hey, I missed that, Jenna, so maybe you should start a podcast because that really flew over my hand. She's got a great point. And she doesn't stop there, showing off excellent historical knowledge about the Faith Militant and then being a fawn in the Targaryen side. We already said she's pretty much the opposite of Cersei. You know what that includes? Jenna would make a clearly excellent ruler. It's an absolute crime she never had the opportunity purely because of her gender, a frustration that goes a long way to making Cersei who she is, ironically, and we'll just have to imagine how much better off House Lannister would be if they would listened to Jenna a bit more. But this aunt, she's emotional as well. Apparently Cersei was right. Tywin did have a secret smile. Secret and rare, but Jenna has some real emotional depth in wanting to think that he died with a smile. She certainly, she certainly thinks of him much more fondly than his own children did, of course, he was much nicer to her than his own children, so we should bear that in mind. Jenna's appraisal skills extend to the siege as well. She knows how the phrase and her own damn nephew are viewed by the world. This woman does not wear blinkers, nor does she mince words. She is still a Lannister at heart when she advises going through with killing Edmure. That's the corner that idiot Ryman has painted them into, but you can see she's definitely Tywin's sister when she suggests that. She also has a pretty good damn summation of Cersei's rule, and I couldn't have said it better myself. She says that Kevin would have avoided all this. And so would Jenna Lannister. So let's get behind Ash's wave of female hands. I think that's a good idea all of Westeros should really adopt. Here's that quote that I was talking about earlier. Tiger tried to be his own man, but he could never match your father, and that just made him angrier as the years went by. Jerrion made japes, better to mock the game than play and lose, but Kevin saw how things stood early on, so he made himself a place by your father's side. I just love this, even for people we haven't met, I just love how Jenna lays out for us here. We also get the story of Tywin's bravery in defence of his sister. Back, back in the day when she was first uh, betrothed to Eamon. Now, is that because he loved her or because he loved the family name? We know which option Jenna would choose, but half a century ago, it means just as much for her now. Tywin was big even when he was little, she says. And that reminds me of the line about Tyrion's shadow way, way, way back. But you get this great compliment from Jenna to end, although Jamie will clearly not see it that way. I'm talking, of course, about him not being the Tywin of the family. Perhaps even she doesn't see it that way, and I'm just looking through reader slash Tywin hating tinted glasses. But she is dead on here. We've discussed time and time again how Tyrion replicates his father and his current state of mind in dance gives him even more potential to do so. So she is right. It does feed into theories of Jenna knowing that only Tyrion is a true Lannister, etc. I don't believe the Tyrion theory first off. I definitely don't believe the Jamie Cersei one. So I'll just push that to the side. To oppose that line of thinking, we can mark Jenna's line as an insult rather than a compliment. I always initially take it as a compliment, but Perhaps it's more of a critique that Jamie doesn't have enough of the tough stuff, the Tywin stuff, in him to be a proper ruler, whereas Tyrion does. 
Jenna does reprimand Jamie for not knowing his Targaryen history, for not understanding why someone would want more than one castle, for example, for not having the inherently political mind that Tywin and Tyrion share. Jamie simply isn't that man. As she says, she's more he's more like some of the other brothers. And it fits into the pulling of different directions Jamie has suffered and will continue to suffer. How much to be honourable and how much to be like Tywin. And that fits in perfectly with his next chapter with Edmure, where that exact question will be asked and answered. So that offsets the golden hand identity too. Moreover, I think this is Jenna realising what a disaster Cersei is for the realm and the family, and therefore critiquing Jamie's ability to control her as Tywin, and to a lesser extent Tyrion, did before him. Because who also knows of their relationship? Might be her who can say. She does say, do what Tywin would have done after all. So actually she's being pretty clear about who she wants Jamie to emulate. I do think she still appreciates Jamie's other qualities in the same way she appreciated her other brothers. She just doesn't think they are what is required to be the head boss, the head man of the Lannister family. So she knows it's not going to go well with Cersei. It's not going to go well with you as you are. And unfortunately, Tyrion has gone to us. But there we shall leave it, everybody. Two Jamie chapters today, so we're a bit spoiled. And Brienne and Cersei, like I said, the Feast Four, even though there's only three. So that is a real good collection. I especially like those two Jamie chapters there. Especially bookending the beautiful Brienne compared with cruel Cersei. A real mix and match we've got in today's episode. Now, next week, we also have another four chapters for you. As always, we'll begin with Cat of the Canal slash Eye of Three. Yes, our last Eye of the Book. Then Samwell 4, Cersei 8, and Brienne 7. You know the one I'm talking about. Well, yeah, we are racing towards the end here so make sure you come back join us for part 10 of feast for crows already part 10 like i said earlier do get in touch with any thoughts you might have about a mailbag episode questions episode whatever you want to call it that might be a bit of fun little bonus episode for you there uh, obviously if you have questions as well send them in as always i would like to thank you for coming to join the aisle thank you to our wonderful patrons both new and older and we should see you again next time see you later